I'm WFAE's David Borax, and this is R&D in the QC. Tarek Bakari and Larkin Eggleston, one Republican and one Democrat who bonded as first-term Charlotte City Council members. Somehow, they both got re-elected, and now we're stuck listening to another season of this amateur hour bullshit. In the first 82 episodes, they talked to a governor, a senator, presidential candidates, and even a journalist or two. Their goal again this season, bringing Charlotte listeners behind the scenes of the city council in one of America's fastest-growing cities. I won't be listening, but for some reason, you are. Welcome to R&D in the QC episode 112, what we're calling the Peaches and Cream Edition. <laughs> Do you get that, Tark? Do you get that reference? Uh, there's, some, there's some 112 reference in there. I get it. Peaches and Cream. It's the hot, the hot fire single from the R&B superstars 112. I thought it was Gooder Room 112. Tell them. That's, that's a sushi place in downtown Charlotte. Great. So I digress. What's well, on today's episode? <laughs> I'm not sure you digress either. You digressed. All right, why don't you just start over, and then you can make the same joke, and I'll go. No, no, we're not. This is going to be the one we use. Oh, come on, bro. Welcome to the Peaches and Cream Edition, where we will talk about tonight's rezoning meeting. We will talk about the election delay. We will talk about mobility, transformation mobility plan, transformational mobility plan. <laughs> this, is going, this is going all so well. Per week. It's our and first comprehensive plan. All of those things. On episode 112. We're out of practice. Yes, it's been a month. We keep telling you we're going to do better than once a month. We keep not doing better than once a month. But as Tarek and I just discussed all fair, we think that the light is at the end of the tunnel for us being back in the building for our city council meetings. And hopefully that will get us back into our good habit of heading upstairs, knocking out the episode right after our council meetings before we head home. Uh, it keeps us on a better schedule than when we three times a week say, Hey, when should we record? And then well, let's start the show. And then all three of those times say, Maybe tomorrow. So, welcome to the show, episode 112. That was the longest intro we've ever had, I believe. Record breaking intro length. Congratulations. Councilman Eggleston. Thank you. So it is Monday, April 19th. And uh, since the last time we talked to you, a lot has happened. But uh, tonight we've got a rezoning meeting. So for those of you who are listening to this uh, tonight or tomorrow, quickly to hit on a couple of high notes there, we will be, uh, these are all tentative decisions because we have to actually take the vote tonight. But as best we are aware, one of the things that will likely dominate the headlines of the rezoning meeting tomorrow will be the approval of a very tall tower in the uh, metropolitan development. What we're actually doing there, and I actually just saw an article today that said city council will be extending the skyline of uptown Charlotte into midtown. Well, it's actually already been extended by uh, approval. There was an approval for this same exact building in the metropolitan development in midtown some years back, well before you and I were on council talk, uh, all we are doing is changing the use of it because there are obviously not a lot of new hotel developments that are just now breaking ground in the wake of the COVID crisis. So we are changing it to a residential development. Um, that's likely to get approved tonight. Not much opposition there. And, uh, and I think that's, a, that's an appropriate area for us to kind of grow the center city. Um, another one that people will note, particularly those who live in my district, Two months ago, we had a hearing for one. Um, I referred to it as dead on arrival at the time, which did not go over well with some folks, as you might imagine. 
Um, that one actually is a perfect demonstration and I've used it now in, in a couple of ones that are coming towards a hearing since then. Perfect demonstration of a lot happens during the process of a rezoning. I always have to remind people, um, you've had plenty, I've had plenty, where it starts off and it's nowhere close to something that could get approved. And at the end, it does. I think it often leads people, you know, people say, well, oh, y'all approve almost everything that comes before you. Well, it's because it either gets fixed during this process or it gets withdrawn or thrown out. Um, nothing should be coming to us. In fact, there's one tonight that our colleague, Victoria Watlington, had, had spoken with most of us about, and we had agreed to support her in voting against this particular rezoning. And the people saw the writing on the wall and they are deferring it tonight to have some more time to work on it. So the reason things don't get voted down is because they never come to a vote if that's gonna happen. And um, so this NODOT one's a good example of something that two months ago I said was dead on arrival. Now we have a letter of support from all the same neighbors who were up in arms speaking against it two months ago. Well, way to go, Larkin. A lot of what? I mean, the, the neighbors and the developer did the hard work. I just lit a fire under their ass by saying it was dead on arrival. You did it. Uh, and the last one of particular interest is you'll recall that there was a lot of commotion around a potential rezoning at the Peculiar Rabbit, uh, a, a bar and rest, former bar and restaurant over in the Plaza Midwood area. That has been withdrawn and right now is going nowhere. Um, so that had, had generated a lot of buzz because we had folks like the owners of Snug Harbor coming out and saying they were worried about the impacts it would have. To, like, yeah, didn't, didn't it, I thought I read an article about that the other day. Didn't they say like, they're just like, well, you know what, we're out. Yeah, the buyer walked away, and um, so now they're they're shopping it for new, looking for a new buyer. I mean, that's that, that's that, that, and you know, listen, you, I'm not in the details of this, so if I say something dumb, obviously correct me. But that's the problem where, like, when these rezonings occur and people see this thing, and they're like, "I don't like that thing. I would like this thing." It's like it's just not how you can go into these. That's not the me methodology by which they can work because. You, you, you can only, that's, this is our role, right? We can only really consider the opportunity that's in front of us because of course people want, you know, a 18,000 square foot laser tag farm. Yeah, who doesn't? Can't always are make they, that Are work. they called farms? Yeah, that's what we call them now. <laughs> laser tag farm. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's where you grow laser tags. Yeah, I mean, what do you think that these things just magically appear? They have to be grown, Larkin. Um, yeah, and in this case, there were some legitimate concerns, but one of the things was people said, we don't want residential there. Well, residential is actually already allowed by right under the current zoning, which was one of the things we had to point out to folks. So there is sometimes some value in certainty and these conditional rezonings allow for people to actually have that certainty and know exactly what has to be built. For instance, this thing in, in Metropolitan, it was zoned, basically, again, they're building the same building but because it was conditional and because it was so tightly constrained, it had to be the hotel. Well, now we're changing just, they had to come back into a whole nother rezoning, just change the use. So I think, you know, you get the certainty that you might not get if, if somebody says, all right, well, I'll just do what I can do by right. You might end up liking it less. Neither here nor there. Um, it had created enough commotion, especially and really early on. And that's the unfortunate thing sometimes is I think before there's even an opportunity for a discussion or, a lot of good information to get out. Sometimes these things become so, so radioactive that there's hardly any way to recover from it. Um, in this case, a Facebook page popped up and caught fire. And, you know, we'd hardly even started a conversation around what was actually being proposed. Uh, I didn't have any strong feelings about whether it was a good or a bad proposal. I think it was probably 
about as good or bad as what could have been done by Wright. But either way, it's off the table now. They'll look for a new buyer. And my guess will be that after having seen this, someone who would be interested in buying it will just figure out what they can do without a rezoning to yeah. do that. Um, exactly. But the peculiar rabbit lives on. And by lives on, I mean sits empty for another day. Um, we shall see. It's It sucks, too, because I walked by there the other day um, headed to, to Seoul and there's like trash around the property. And I mean, it's not good for stuff to sit empty. Um, it just falls into disrepair and it's not maintained to the same degree it would be if it were an active. Well, business. we're a deal making city, not a planning city, Larkin. And I think that's a fine example of that. So, um, all right. Election delay. This came up in our intergovernmental meeting today. And I've actually been playing fun with the executive director of the League of Municipalities for the last two days, looking for an update on the same topic. Um, but it is all but certain now that there will not be filing in July. Well, it is certain. There's not going to be filing in July um, at a primary in September. I mean, not necessarily. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that. I would well, say it's, it's unlikely, but it's not could, out of the realm of possibility. The only way you could have filing in July would be if we decided to conduct elections under the old lines. Is that a fair statement? That is correct. Which I think, I mean, I, I don't know about you, maybe you've heard someone say differently, but I haven't heard anyone say they think that is a good idea. I, I am to the point now where I literally don't even know what a good idea is on this front. It's just such a mess. So, because I've been real, real deep in this. So look, I'll tell you, you and I haven't even discussed this at this level of detail. So I tell you now and you, you react to it. But, but essentially, there is no doubt that it is um, unconstitutional to hold elections based on the timeline that we've seen. So what do we know? We know well, that- we'll Hold elections under- Well, he, I'll tell you why. Under, under the current drawn districts. Right. Yes. Because if you've had a redraw, in like, and, or not a redraw, if you've had a, a census- Right. And the day, even if they haven't handed it to us, the yep. fact that it's been had violates the constitutional element of one person, one vote. Right. So, so that's no, no brainer, hands down, that's it. So now you're in a spot of timeline. So if you look at timeline, I think it's the, it's September that we would be getting most likely the end of September. September 30th is the date they currently have out there. Right. So clearly we're already past filing. We're already past primary. Yeah, yeah. primary times, all that stuff. So, so could you jam some things together and do it in this timeline? Literally almost impossible. So that, that is, that is not possible to redraw it with the time we have, unless by some miracle, the government, the federal government came out and did something faster than they said they would, which let's just that say that's like not yeah. an option. So, so you're in this spot now where, the, the, the most of the conversation has been around, it's got to be delayed. Who should it be delayed for? And there's the 500 or so municipalities that don't have districts that this doesn't apply to, doesn't uh, violate the Constitution. And then there's the 41 or so that do have districts that this does violate the Constitution. So I think everyone's pretty much said those 500 off the table, like they're going to have their election this year. Um, you look up in, in Huntersville, all those folks had lunch with our buddy, uh, the mayor up there last John week. Canarilla. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very clear kind of where they are. And they don't have any reason to not have their elections, right? So 
done, right? So then it's just down to those of us that are here. So I, I you know, the, the topic that's been discussed most has been, do we just delay it, put it on the 2022 even year um, um, uh, election okay. cycle, which then also that might need to be delayed a, a little bit, but that's, that's okay. You don't need to worry about that much. I, I think it's pretty much been a non-starter of a conversation to have it like a little off cycle where we're doing another general before it. It's just dumb. No one's going to show up to it. It's going to cost a lot of money. So that's there. Now, another interesting angle has been raised, and I've done a little research on it. And I don't, I'm not saying this is the answer, but I said, all right, what happens if we, ha if we have the elections under the old, the old maps, right? So pretty much the, the, the conclusion there is nothing would happen unless somebody sued. And Which they would. <laughs> who? Well, I mean, the first person that comes to mind would be someone who lost a close election. Now, hold on. Let me stop you. Because then the second part of that is the only way that it would likely have any standing to do something is if someone sued before the election and a judge said, nope, take it off. You, you have to push it out. Because if it happened after, the, the consensus I'm hearing from legal minds at the state level here uh, is that nothing would happen after the fact. So the only real plausible scenario is someone decided to sue before the election to delay it. But you led off with that it, because there has been a census, because there's as big a disparity as there is between the size of some of the districts in our city, I think district three and district five are the are furthest spread and they might be something like 40,000 people apart. And I think the threshold is it can only be plus or minus 5%. Yeah, there's no doubt that's what we've met the thresholds of requirement. Right. So there's you no doubt. Led with the fact that it would be unconstitutional to do it. So then who in good conscience would say we should do a thing that we acknowledge is unconstitutional. Yeah, but uh, so listen, I'm not arguing either way. I'm just kind of laying out like I I don't I just I, I wish this wasn't happening is probably my my main wish. I know you probably wish this wasn't happening, right? Just because well, I, mean, it, I mean it doesn't actually even have an impact on me because I'm I'm not running in a district this next election. I'm running citywide and so but it doesn't make, I agree with you that it doesn't make sense to try to, if we are delaying to 2022, it doesn't make sense to do it at a different time than like the county commissioners and the state legislature and stuff, because it's just a more, it's more of an expense, more confusion. Um, at the same time, it does seem, I think from the outside looking in, I agree with those points. And then people will say, okay, but why do you need to wait all the way till next November to elect new council members? And the question that really hadn't been discussed all that much is when we do this, are we running for a one-year term or a three-year term? See, now that that's that's the one of the bigger factors that someone could argue doing it, doing it this year on cycle, right? The downside is obviously like it's unconstitutional. Well, someone might argue that the constitutionality of this is 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 significant in the fact that. Um, you know, we're in a circumstance where we've never seen this kind of delay or anything like this. It's unprecedented. You can also argue that the General Assembly, like we, we serve at, you know, at their, at the discretion at, you know, based on what they, so they could change that. They could literally come back and say, we're removing all of you today and holding a new election tomorrow based on these districts. So it's not, it's, there are, there is more, it's not as black and white as it's unconstitutional. Like, 
the General Assembly can make a decision that could remove us all from office tomorrow because we serve at their pleasure. So I think you have to take that, that constitutional angle, which I am not a constitutional scholar, with a grain of salt, knowing that they have powers versus us making a decision down here based on their ordinances and the Constitution. But then separately, if you look at, all right, well, what's the fallout? I think you saying you're not a constitu constitutional scholar is one of those things that could have gone unsaid. I think that's been assumed. Well, I mean, I'm a Republican, so I'm assuming. By all of our listeners. As a Republican, I'm assuming they realize I'm, I'm as close to a constitutional scholar as many of them have ever heard from. Unless they've ever taken like a middle school, <laughs> a middle yeah. school government class. I'm just a bill. All right. So, um, so I, th but I think the other side of this, which can't go un undiscussed at least is aside from the dynamics of an even year election being so totally different, like Charlotte, what we are, why we take, I, and, and I, in my opinion, why we're successful in a lot of ways in, in ways that other big top 20 size cities aren't is we have such an emphasis, relatively speaking on municipal local politics, right? In odd years, we are the top of the ticket nearly, right? So like the people that come out have to pay attention and that's important to me. So we know for a fact, 2022, like we would be in the, the lowest level rounding error you could ever imagine for people coming out for all kinds of other things paired with the people that would come on would likely only be running for one year terms at that point, which is like, I mean, that's a brutal proposition. So, you know, it's just unfortunate. I don't really have a fully formed position other than I just hope this thing gets solved with the, the least amount of collateral damage as possible. So just, well, that's interesting. Well, no, I'm sorry. In 2018, we didn't have a, um, we didn't have a Senate election, did we? So the Senate yeah. election changes the the dynamics, obviously, of the turnout significantly. And so our think about the think think about just this, Larkin. So pretend you are running at large, which we know at large is uh, well, let me say a, this a, a massive up, race. Let me look at this so I can, or say this so I can look up the other piece. In twenty, well, it's hard because there is a U.S. Senate race, but there's not a presidential race. Yep. And so I guess the last time that happened would have been 2014. So it's hard to compare apples to apples here. But I mean, the primary turnout was almost quadruple in the even year versus the odd year most recently. Now, granted, that's presidential, but with a Senate race that could break all records for. That's my point. The, the, the Senate race being at the top is normally a game changer on its own. It's 50-50 in the Senate, and this is the first opportunity for people to, the voters, to react to that. Do you know what kind of money is going to be flowing into North Carolina? Uh, aside from being drowned out, when you go for a mailer or when you go to do a buy for radio or whatever you do, do you know how much more that's going to cost than it normally costs for you? Like, it's, it will be, if you can even get them to do it, which it may all be bought out at that point. It's Our turnout in 2019 for the primary was was 21%, but it had the McCready Bishop race on top of it, which which was a lot of money and, and it's turnout. a lot. But is it, it, I mean that is just a, that isn't even a fact. Anyway, it's it's a this. multiplier effect on the turnout. Um, it's a multiplier effect on the cost of running a campaign and on the difficulty of getting any sort of, of bandwidth or there being any sort of oxygen in the room to actually talk about city issues because. 
both on the Republican and Democratic side, there's going to be incredibly competitive and incredibly expensive Senate primaries, not to mention all the state legislature, U.S. Congress, county commission, everything else. So uh, the other thing it does is it pushes back in whatever amount of time, we don't know yet, the vote on our transfer transformational mobility network uh, oh, on the transit tax. I wouldn't worry about that. <laughs> well, so I think that it's, that's critical too. I mean, it, it ties into what we're going to wrap the episode. There, was, there is zero chance that's ready for anything this year. It, it may Great. not be ready next year. Well, and no, but you, I don't even think you would be allowed to have it stand alone. It has to be on an otherwise yeah. uh, existing ballot. So I actually think that's a good thing. I, I don't, Obviously, I'm not excited. It's a non-thing. It, it isn't even a thing. Well, it's, it's a thing in as much as there's still some a lot of coalition building to do on that. Um, and I and I think more time is gives us a chance to try. The other thing that... Though, who it, would it, run... Just theoretically, because you're trying to make it seem like that's tied to this. Who would even run the bill in the General Assembly to enable us to have legislative authority to have a referendum? And there's only one correct answer. <laughs> well, oh, you mean from the Mecklenburg delegation? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I think, well, for, I mean, so for one, obviously the coalition building would be focused on North Mecklenburg, which speaks to the one person you're talking about from our delegation. But I think, I don't believe that we would have gotten as far down the road as we've gotten in that discussion if we truly believed that there was no chance of being granted the authority to put that on a ballot. Oh, is that, that's your position? Yeah. I, I, I would say that my feeling is it's the exact opposite of what you just said. It was, it was a, an afterthought that a couple pleasant meetings and stop bys and high fives uh, after was like, yeah, Oh, that was great. And there is absolutely zero traction or ability for that to occur which is a huge oversight and flaw to how we've arrived at this point. Well, I will be surprised and disappointed if, if we have spent as much time on that as we've spent and there were not good reasons for the folks who should have known to believe that this was possible to, do, to you, do. I mean, do you, like you and I know about as much as most people, I would say, that are in I the know so. on this. I hope so. No, that are in the know on this. It, no. It's not just like the amount of time we spent. We've spent a massive chunk of $50 million, of which I voted against, to actually do the studies for these things. And the reason I voted against it was because of exactly this. There's no plan for the funding, no plan for going about getting the authority to be able to get the funding, even if we had a plan. All, so, we went, so we've spent real money here. But you don't think that there is a... There's a lot of cover for Republicans in Raleigh to allow this because it's not them putting a tax on folks. It's them allowing voters to decide if they want to tax themselves. It's night and day from them putting a tax on somebody. But B, if the federal government, which it seems inclined to do, is going to pump tons of money into infrastructure and transit type projects like this, do you think they want to leave that money on the table if we just need some amount of local match to, to cash in on it. I mean, no, I, nobody wants to leave that on the table. I, 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 I mean, I won't say nobody, but nobody I talk to wants to leave that on the table. However, the current approach, the current 
state we're in with it, um, the current plans, like it's almost a non-starter at this point. Like we have to go back to the drawing board. Like you're, you're the, the point you're making, the reason why it's so frustrating to me having voted against it and preached about this exact same thing is when we did all this and we voted for that $50 million to study it, it was clear. It was like, we're going to throw some chips out on the table so people know we're playing and start doing this work, even though we have no plan by which to get there. And that was at a time where we had zero Republicans in the, uh, the state house. So, so no, yeah, that, that, that would have meant someone would have had to champion the bill and, and push it forward. We had, we had one in the Senate. So we had one in the Senate of which he was definitely not down with that. And then we've since swapped and we have one in the house and he's not down with that right now. So you don't, you don't think if we, and I, and I do actually believe that there is a chance that we make progress with the railroad on that, that North Met corridor. I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying I think we're going to necessarily get that, uh, that arrangement worked out. I'm saying, I do think that there is a chance. I do think there are conversations now with different people at the table that make that a possibility. You think, suppose that that is to happen. Okay. Huge, you believe, huge you assumption believe, one, continue. You don't believe that a lot of the people, including Representative Bradford, who are the voices of North Mecklenburg, immediately start looking at this very differently if we can get that worked out. Right, so, so you've jumped a couple steps. No, I've so, jumped one step, you, a step that I have a reason to believe. Towns, you jumped possible. towns. No, the towns, I think the towns immediately start looking at this completely differently if they know the red line is possible. I mean, the, 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 that's where the debate and dialogue and negotiation has been for the last several weeks with them. And there, there's still, so, so, so you're saying, all right, uh, all of a sudden Norfolk Southern is like, yep, here you go. The thing we've never done ever, we're going to do now. All right, that's one check. Then it's remember, not it's not just it one of they're good-hearted people. There's there's some leverage points. I understand the leverage points. Worked. So you're, you, we're bringing in now a whole another topic of their primary line and the and the challenge. Go down a rabbit hole again, just for the sake of the argument. Allow that. So they say thumbs up. I believe there is a possibility on that. Let's say we get there. I think it changes the whole. You conversation. think that then leverages all the towns to to move forward there? Versus their desire to just split the money up at best case scenario and be able to do their own things or argue about, because now you're still talking rail, right? Versus they have significant concerns about bus routes and bus prophecies that have never been fulfilled. It's not, ju it's not just rail that would be coming if this were to move forward, but, but rail is the big, sexy, shiny piece. Mm. Oh, I forgot they added in a couple of the other things into the slideshows to make it multimodal. I think it changes the conversation. I would agree that if we are not successful in getting a different outcome on the Norfolk Southern and Redline piece, that there's there's very little way forward. But I do think there's a possibility that that could change. It still I, begs I, the question. See, here's what blows my mind. It's still I, as much work as I've been doing to try to wave shiny objects that everyone says, hey, look at this. Are, are we not even going to consider what the future looks like in all of this? Are we just gonna keep rehashing the tools and methods of the past and how people were moved when we are literally in the final stages of converting into the fourth industrial revolution right now? Like no one's even gonna humor that conversation. This blows my mind. What year do you think that 
no one will be driving their own personal vehicle. I don't know that that's how the future plays out exactly like that. I just know that by 2028, more cars are predicted to be coming off of assembly lines without steering wheels than with. So, I mean, no one knows how the economy is and cities are going to evolve in that. We just know that's a pretty good indication that the autonomous vehicles will be at the levels and they have these very clearly defined levels of, 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 of autonomy for vehicles. They're going to be there by that point. 5G is going to revolutionize that stuff. So like, but how, in, how in the world is the implementation of 5G going to be so widespread and, and perfectly consistent in seven years? You, Sorry, I can't drive from Charlotte to Asheville. Let me make you dropping a phone call. Let me make right an, a, a, see, uh, Dude, you and I are boys. Like, you should know the answers to this. All right. We've been, I've been, unless you just don't listen to me when we're playing Call of Duty and I'm just saying this stuff. Part of the time I don't listen to you, but, but you think, here's the answer. Let I, me I agree that in Charlotte, we could potentially have the infrastructure to do this. You here's think, an easy like, answer. rural Eastern North Carolina, there's going to be all these autonomous cars in seven years. Here's a very, very easy answer for you, right? In today's world. And it still doesn't answer spotty cell phone connection or this or that. When we went from 3G to 4G, right? Just that stuff you didn't even notice, right? That enabled the infrastructure to exist where things like Uber and Lyft could now operate. Those are, and those are incremental steps up that that couldn't have existed before 4G. 5G is just, so are there a billion additional? Does does Uber work in every part of North Carolina? Does Uber work in every part of Charlotte? Every part I've ever tried it. That's correct. But I'm talking about the whole state. You can't just make cars that are autonomous if if parts of the state can't accommodate autonomous cars. So now you're thinking right now in terms of 2021 infrastructure and how it all works. That's why the jump between 3G and 4G isn't perfect to be compared to 4G and 5G. It requires different things, but it is revolutionary. It's not the difference between a DVD and a Blu-ray. It's the difference between a VHS uh, um, a cassette and freaking Netflix. That, that's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, an, eco, it's a con, an economy yeah. that will, dude, they are I'm testing. I'm disagreeing right with now. the technology. I'm just disagreeing with the idea that, that we're gonna be in, an, in a mostly autonomous state in seven years because we maybe could do it in Charlotte, but I don't see how you could do it in rural parts of North Carolina that quickly. And so I still think that we are going to need. So do, you, do, you, do you know what's going on with like Elon Musk and Starlink right now? I mean, in terms of rural connection, yeah. But we're I, not I just, digging up yards in these in these uh, pilots anymore. We're beaming it from satellites and for rural areas. Starlink is designed. so. I'm maybe that isn't the, the ubiquitous world we live in in seven years but it's certainly very plausible for 20 to 30 years from now, of which that's the time frame we're building right now, not seven years. It's, dude, they have actually, Honeywell in our own backyard is, is, is in their R&D shops designing flying taxis. This is not like something made up. Like they- no, I'm, not, I'm not making fun of the technology. You're making fun of the fact that those changes are coming. But I also think that even in 10 years, if most of Charlotte has access to autonomous ride sharing, and maybe they will, not everyone's going to be able to afford that. There's going to be people who that is very expensive, just like ordering Uber Eats or Uber. Not everyone takes an Uber. Which here, might be and and again, the, like I'm glad we're having this. Bus. I'm glad we're having this debate. But again, 
this is why you have to, you have to, ha you, we have to be immersed in these conversations. You can't just sit here, hear something and have a gut reaction like that. Cause the fact of the matter is what it costs. I'll make up some numbers. If a $30 taxi ride in 2008 went down to $11 via Uber, right? When that popped out, you know, seven, eight years later, think about like, what do you pay in Uber? Well, other than the overhead with the cost, you pay the human that has to buy the car. Well, if the car value and all the mass production goes way down and humans are now not part of that in 10 years from now, which that very well should, could, could and should be ubiquitous in, in major cities by then, it's, it's about the economies of scale that bring the cost down to you being able to get anywhere in your city in, in whatever it takes from point A to B is as quick a line as you can it's get. It's not going to be less than $3. Is it not? And even if it isn't, even if it isn't, why not subsidize that? Not the freaking rails that go one way and you have to have, for, you know, multiple uh, multimodal connections and all that. Like this provides a solution and we can help shape it. These questions we can solve for if we start taking it seriously. The problem is we're not taking it seriously. Okay, so if if I if I allow for all of what you've predicted to be true, then should we also say we're never going to widen another road? Why would you say that? Because autonomous vehicles are going to move much more efficiently. I mean, all of this autonomous vehicles operate on the game field of the road. That means we need to invest and enhance, change the laws, change the way we think about insurance and recs. Everything now becomes, how do we create a better future world and reimagine the road? That, so but yes, maybe they don't need to be widened. You, you theoretically are, are minimizing, if not eliminating accidents. You, you change the whole game. You wouldn't need eight lane highways to accommodate cars that can travel the perfect speed and be the perfect. So you're gonna, so though. you're, so you're debating me by going into the nuances of this hypothetical world that, you know, that the economies of scale and stuff. That's not the the point. Is there's a billion scenarios that could occur, but I, but you know that there's a catalyst that will make something different happen. So now we've reached a point of stupidity in our conversation right now, that hopefully shows you the power of where it will be. And people like me, they're going to look back and they're going to be like, oh my gosh, like it, it wasn't exactly the way he described it then, but why weren't more people talking about it? It's, it's, it will be mind boggling for someone to go back and find this podcast and listen to it 20, 20 years from now. Mind boggling. Maybe so. Well, either way, whatever ends up happening or not happening with that is going to have a big impact on the way that our city is built and the way that our city grows for those 20 or 30 years. And that's another thing that we're debating, and that's a piece of it. Uh, but the 2040 comp plan, which is a vision that will then be later codified by the council in a in the form of a UDO, a Unified Development Ordinance, and the 2040 comp plan, probably by the time we did our episode uh, about four weeks ago, I'm sure we were already in the thick of that conversation. In fact, we definitely were, but I don't know how much we talked about it on that episode, but it has continued to be a big conversation. You might want to plug if we're sitting here on Monday the 19th, I think on Thursday the 22nd, you've got a, a thing people can tune into to hear more about it. But we're tracking now, not for a late April vote like we were originally, but for a late June vote. Um, but it has continued to be contentious. And, and again, one of the, the mobility stuff is going to be 
a big differentiator one way or the other as to, to what the city looks like as it moves forward. Yeah. I mean, it's a great point. Um, um, I, I think one side note to what you just said is we continually have our, our planning director and others say that the 2040 comp plan is a land use plan. And I mean, yeah, there's, there's a component of land use in it. There's a component of transit and transportation and mass transit and roads and technology. There's a component of economic development and jobs and workforce. I mean, so it's, it's, it, it, we, we are operating in these mini silos and verticals and fiefdoms that are just beyond speaking me. And that's why that, we're here. Speaking of that last point, tell people that want to tune in what your thing is. Yeah, so there. tune in. You can go to the charlotte.gov. or the city channels. Yeah, it's posted everywhere. You can sign up to speak if you want or you can watch. And that we'll have a committee meeting on Wednesday. Um, I'm the final of three committees. The mayor has, has handed us um, to have a, a variety of discussions. Mine will be focused on the economic um, impacts and the financial and fiscal impacts of the entire plan with a specific focus on single family zoning and the abolishment of it, of um, community benefit agreements and the stupidity of them and the um, focus on particularly 10 minute uh, communities and some of the flaws that exist within that, as well as the broader construct um, or format of the document and, uh, and, and how that can be optimized to be a more effective use of where we are today. So uh, the committee meeting, you'll be able to watch at noon on Wednesday and then 5.30 on Thursday is the community discussion. So we just had a transportation planning committee meeting today where we discussed the 10 minute neighborhoods. We discussed some of the conflicts in the plan. Um, but then the, the main meat of the conversation was around the single family zoning piece. Um, the change that's been proposed by one of our colleagues is to take the current language of that like duplexes, triplexes are allowed on any parcel and change the language to in any place type the place types would be mapped after the adoption of the plan but before the creation of the udo you know i don't know in in practice what what difference that will end up having i i mean that's that's continuing to be the most contentious part um, I have a real simple premise on this. Would you like to hear? Sure. Simple premise is this. It may be an awesome idea. It may be a stupid idea. No one is able to tell you with any certainty uh, which one it will be. I have a hunch. Others have a hunch. The, the fact of the matter is this concept of upzoning, and I, trust me, over the last month, I've gone deeper in planning white papers and what that industry and discipline means than I ever have in my life. This concept of upzoning is a new phenomenon. So no one actually knows. There's a few cities that are doing some things of which the jury is far out from, from anything. Some on one side say, oh, we need, we, need, um, uh, um, we need density. We need more units. We're growing as a city. That is absolutely true. There's no doubt. And if that was the only statement that, that existed, I think we would all be in agreement, even though there would be some pain points from neighbors to say, look, this is what we need. We're growing really fast. Our reserves are really low. Like this is the kind of things that cripple a city. 
Um, however, the other major topic that is the same level, if honestly has, has gotten more play from us in the last four years is affordability. And affordability, whether it was the 50 million and the bond that we did record breaking, focusing on affordable housing, all the projects and things we've approved, all the LIHTC money, all the different partnerships with the private sector and NOAAs. I mean, it's a focus of ours. And to, to brush that under the rug and say, oh, well, but in this topic, you know, we don't need to worry about it or it'll take care of itself is absurd and reckless. So that second piece of affordability has to be, has to be a point of conversation here. I am a firm believer based on my understanding of economics that based on where we are, if we open up the gates, upzone everything and allow duplex through triplex and then quadplex just anywhere, corner-wise, anywhere in the city um, by right, there will be an implication to affordability there and it won't be the thing that people want. In fact, it will be a, a more direct implication to gentrification than some of the terrible stories we've seen thrown around of decades past to us. So with that premise, my, 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 my point right now is very simple. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe they're right, maybe vice versa, I don't know. The whole point is somebody needs to do an, a fiscal and an economic impact analysis on what happens to the affordability of housing when we unleash the, 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 the gates right there, which by extension means gentrification. No one has done that. And in fact, no one is even proposing we ever do that based on the reading I've been doing over the last two days from details I've gotten. So, you know, that's, that's if you wanna put something like that, which is a granular tool that we should be discussing, if at all, during the UDO time, and now at a high-level vision in a comp plan, we should be talking about what are the high-level vision items that steer policy of the future, and then ultimately ordinance. It is we want to embrace in a very aggressive manner density while ensuring affordability. Stop, full stop. You don't need to go in to these other ideas that you literally haven't vetted, let alone me, as a, as a planning staff. So, I mean. If you have at all an open mind to logic and, and reason, there's, there is no reason for us to be having the single family debate right now, other than the fact that this is good practice for us to see how people respond, that we need our ducks in a row if we come back during UDO to talk about it. Other than that, they have no idea, and anyone in staff that tries to tell you they do know is full of crap. I don't think there's a person on council that doesn't acknowledge that the city of Charlotte is going to have to become more dense. Um, there's no way around it. My concern, and and Councilmember Watlington has, has voiced this a lot too, is that there is not a mechanism that we've come up with yet to preserve and or create affordability. Um, and we we talked about that some in the in the meeting today. Uh, I think in the big picture- If there was, it would have happened on the blue line. If there was, it would have happened on the gold line. It would have, there would have been thousand times over. The, if anyone well, who uses the that- gold line went, the, gold line goes through, the gold line goes through currently already developed areas. I think the blue line, the first phase of the blue line, I think was maybe not a realization of the impact the blue line was really going to have. Um, now, the second phase of the blue line, by then they knew the success story and the, the investment levels that you'd see along the line. I, 
I don't know. I mean, I think I think that in the big picture, in aggregate, I think more supply is good for to meet the demand and to relief relieve some of the pressure on prices. If affordability housing. can be insured. But I think that, and I have neighborhoods in my district that, that come to mind, I think it will accelerate gentrification that is already taking place in some of those communities, primarily to the people who rent older housing stock um, that is currently naturally affordable because it's old uh, and maybe hasn't been had a whole lot of reinvestment in it. It's still meeting the you know standards of living it's still a, a safe place to live um we don't want people living in substandard conditions but i don't mean substandard conditions i just mean a 50 or 60 year old house that doesn't have brand new appliances and countertops it's affordable for a reason i think we incentivize that landowner to probably raise that home more quickly if they know oh well i can you know this this house is worth one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I can knock it down and build three units that are each three hundred thousand dollars. Why would they not do that? So it's not it's not just why would they not do that. It's I will fight with every fiber in my being to ensure that doesn't happen. But if it does happen, there's a very real scenario that I'll quit all this stuff, start a company, and go become ridiculously rich doing just that and being ahead of the curve. And I mean, if I'm thinking that which I'm probably not going to do, <laughs> but, but I very well could. And I could, I could, I know I could make a ton of money. You better believe that developers and people that are out there don't see that and aren't kind of like, yeah, I could do something at scale that wasn't allowed. I had to go get rezonings. It wasn't feasible before. And now I can do it by right. Consider that done. So for people who are homeowners, I think this increases most people's property values. And I think that's a good thing. And if people choose to sell, then they choose to sell and that's their personal decision. And we have programs for lower income people who might, you know, see a, a tax implication on the increase of, of value. I'm worried about people who rent because they don't have that control. And I think in some of my neighborhoods, you have 50% of the neighborhood renting and renting in older housing stock that is inexpensive, but it's in a desirable area because of its proximity to transit, because it's near town, whatever. Um, so, you know, I know there are folks who are dismissing that as, you know, a misdirection tactic. But the fact of the matter is anyone who doesn't see how that could play out that way in certain communities in our city is, is not being, is not being genuine um, or logical one or the other. So um, anyway, I, I'm going to be curious to see what changes get made, how quickly they get rolled out and then where we stand because that original version didn't have six votes and I'm not sure it had five. Yeah, so what, I mean, how, how significant will the changes be? How long will we slash the community have to mull over those changes? And then will they be enough to get, and frankly, I don't think this can be a six, five vote and I don't think it should be a seven, four vote. I think this thing needs to get to a place where, a minimum of seven, but preferably eight plus council members agree with it. Because I think if it's a six, five vote, it will just continue to be a wedge issue in our community, not on council. That is what it is. You know, council's already <laughs> divided on stuff. I, I just think it becomes a wedge issue for the city for a long time. I think 
it becomes something that people come on to council saying, well, I'll overturn it. If you elect me, I'll overturn it. I think it's got to be more definitive than that. It has to be that we get to a place where a majority, more than just a majority of council says, I think we've got this as close to right as, as we could be expected to do. I, I, he, let me tell you, it, here's, here's the end answer. And while nothing is certain in this world, I'll tell you, this is where I believe it's going to track to, which is in the end, there will be a parsing and a creation of two documents and a third thing that sits over here. The two documents will be what ends up being a much shorter, higher level, appropriate level, what is the 2040 comp plan. And that thing basically is 10 slightly tweaked goals that we know those are that most of us are pretty much in alignment with, with a few minor tweaks, followed by a parsing of various levels of the, of the objectives beneath them, which right now are all over the map and need to be brought up to the appropriate levels. And in that, that will essentially become the comp plan. There will be no citation of single family zoning one way or another. There'll be no citation of big ideas. There'll be no citation of things like community benefit agreements. And things like in the 10 minute communities are gonna be a little bit genericized to be more about anticipating the future to say, you know, it's not that you need a brick and mortar grocery store walking distance from your house, whether that is something you would need today or in a neighborhood today that wouldn't want it, it's access to groceries. Because to be totally honest, within the next 10 years, more groceries will be delivered probably via drone to your house than you actually walking in. You laugh, but listen, man, Mark, like, go back and listen to this podcast 10 years from now. Tell me if I'm right or wrong. And then the second document, finally. Think, I'll just, I'll just, and I'll put a point on this quickly. I think that at times you discount the things that you do and, and I do or will have access to versus everyone in our community. You, 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 oh my God. It, it, I am, it is absurd that we are friends at the level we are and you are so off in your understanding of this. Right now, Instacart, Amazon, all these people inside there have revolutionized how you more cheaply, because there isn't all the brick and mortar overhead, can get products from them. They are talking right now about, you're gonna laugh, but this is the real world that is, is, is coming, flying warehouses that are refrigerated, that fly around your city and drop many drones of your orders off of your groceries within 30 minutes of you ordering them. And everything will more, be- cheap. More cheaply than walking into the store and buying them? Of, of course, because all every product you buy has a fraction of a penny that pays for all the store clerks, all the brick and mortar rent, all the refrigeration and trucks that had to deliver it there. How do you? Refrigerated like, drones aren't free. What? Refrigerated drones aren't free. It also sounds terrifying. <laughs> it's not, dude. I mean, and maybe this is an awakening moment for me, which is I exist in a different I exist in a different world where the futurist discussions that we have, that we all just take for granted, perhaps- I, I just clearly understand that, that drone delivery is coming. I just don't think that we're right around the corner from a low income family being able to have all of their groceries delivered to their door. Why? What about a drone and a floating refrigerated warehouse? make you feel that it can't go in a loop around Charlotte every day as it's delivering groceries. 
I believe that it can. I just believe that for a long time, it will cost more than people going and getting their groceries. That is, dude, that's, that is not how Amazon works. And you know why? Because Amazon operated at a net loss while they consolidated the industry, providing everything cheaper, knowing that it would ultimately scale. There are plenty of other problems with that model, but getting it cheaply, quickly, more cheaply, quickly uh, with less overhead is not one of them. Well, there will forever and always be differences in the things that your family or my family have access to than others. And so I think that, I mean, hell, internet access in 10 years, I don't expect that every family in our community is going to have internet access. And that would be a in 10 years. I, I mean, hell, I hope we do. There's oh, a lot yeah, of stuff. Absolutely. If we don't have that solved in 10 years, then we have been asleep at the wheel. Why do we not have it solved yet? We could solve it right now. If we all said we're going to get this done in the next year, we could absolutely solve it. Well, that's a thing we should probably do. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't know how much more I can say it. 5G will solve that. And it'll be the same infrastructure that brings autonomous vehicles, the R&D shops of all the companies we're recruiting to town. It will have multiple other implications other than complete ubiquitous access to internet across all of Charlotte. And then for those who can't afford the access, we focus around the edges with a fraction of what we spend today with stipends, things like that, programs. Well, from your lips to God's ears. Um, we got a rezoning meeting to get to. Yeah, so man. we will try to bridge the digital divide, the last bits of it tomorrow. Uh, but tonight <laughs> we rezone. All right, man. That's it. So, thank you for joining us for the Peaches and Cream edition of R&D in the QC. That was episode 112. A single, yeah, single, no. double. Triple, single. No, that was last time. We don't have another clever one coming up until uh, 110 episodes from now, which would be the triple deuce. 222. Oh, episode two. We'll both be dead by then. There's no doubt. Like That'll be like 40 years from now. We'll actually be going back and looking at all these. Uh, like, we should listen to the last episode, Larkin. We'll have your son Chase hosting it with uh, with my dog Salem. Chase will be what mayor? Salem mayor brought down. <laughs> who, knows what, who knows what could happen in their flying cars and their refrigerated drones? You're like I'm right. a simple man. Like, subscribe, share, do whatever. No promises when the next episode will be because we'd be lying if we tried. Next week we're doing it every week. This time we promise. But we appreciate y'all and uh, talk to you soon. Peace.